a reading from the prophet Daniel. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient One took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and his, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I watched them because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. As for yourselves, beware, for they will hand you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you at that time. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will raise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it, is ought, where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the housetop must not go down or enter the house to take anything away. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not be in winter. 
For in those days there will be suffering, such as has not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now. No, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has cut short those days. And if anyone says to you at that time, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be alert. I have already told you everything. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these uh, words of Scripture out of the gospel um, that can feel uh, even a little disturbing to us as we hear them read, would you give us ears to hear and uh, minds that can understand, and would you give us a willing heart and willing spirit to be a community that inhabits the things Jesus says? So uh, be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're in the first Sunday of the Lenten season. So I, I didn't grow up uh, practicing Lent. I was in another Christian tradition, and that's not part of what we did in our household. So the whole fasting thing was something that other church traditions did. But I've, I've really come to love the season of Lent. Now, that just can feel a little weird because you think, wait a minute, why, Tuck, that, that's dark. Like, you, you like to think about sin and brokenness and pain and loss. Uh, well, I kind of do, uh, because I feel like it's honest, and I feel like the season of Lent gives, uh, gives me an opportunity, gives us as a community an opportunity to just to look at what is real, right, about the darkness in our lives, in our hearts, um, but also in our world, uh, the losses and the brokenness that are profoundly real. Uh, to us. But one of my favorite poets that, that Stacy and I have enjoyed reading over the last few years is, uh, is Malcolm Geit. And Malcolm Geit is uh, he's a chaplain at one of the colleges at Cambridge, and he, um, he's a poet, beautiful poet. And he does these collections of poems to be read. Here, I'm, this is one, this is a collection called The Word in the Wilderness, a poem a day for Lent and Easter. And so Stacy and I are sort of reading through this uh, as, as we sort of march through this Lenten season to help shape the way we're thinking about certain things on given days. But he says this as he's reflecting, particularly on the practice of, of Ash Wednesday, when we mark our foreheads, right, with the sign of the cross and ashes. He says this, he says, The cross of ash becomes a deeper symbol still, for what is destroyed in that emblem of all our destructiveness is sin itself. In a daring and beautiful creative reversal, God takes the worst that we can do to him and turns it into the very best that he can do for us. Like, what a beautiful statement that here as we look on those parts of darkness in our own stories, and our own life, right, they're there. I struggle and you struggle. I fail and you fail. We do not, right, show forth the love of Jesus consistently and coherently in our own lives. 
And we experience that same pain from one another and in our world at large, right? That in the midst of, of owning up to that, of looking at that, we have this gospel of Jesus that reminds us that God has not left that word as the primary imprint on our lives, but rather we have the word of resurrection, the word of life. So enjoy this season of Lent, right? Enter it. And to help us sort of focus um, our thoughts in the season of Lent, we're going to be particularly sort of finishing up our study of the gospel of Mark. And as we sort of finish up, that puts us very clearly in these last weeks of Jesus' life. He is moving toward Jerusalem to die. And so Jesus, as we sort of move through these last chapters, is going to be having conversations with his disciples that are focused largely on his coming death. And uh, hopefully that'll give us something to chew on as we think about our own continued struggle with death as we think about the power of the resurrection. So the text that we just read um, is one of those stranger texts in the gospel stories, right? It's a, a part of a kind of literature that we often associate as apocalyptic literature. Sometimes it you know, connects with sort of the end of all time. We certainly get a little notion of that here as we read uh, Jesus' interactions with the disciples here. Um, and these words that we read, as we were talking about them as a staff team this last week, you're like, you know, these are just really weird words, right? I mean, I don't know that I'm that interested in this God, right? I mean, it, it just at first, I mean, honestly, at first reading, it's like, whoa, I feel like I've dropped into the middle of a, of a Coen Brothers film instead of Disney, right? Or, or, okay, maybe it's more like Quentin Tarantino. I don't know, but it's, you know, it feels that way, right? Uh, because when it comes to, to God, I, you know, I might prefer Disney, to the Coen brothers. But here's the thing. You get a little less of God in Disney than you do in the Coen brothers. So they don't know, I don't know if that even goes anywhere. But there you go. Take it for what it's worth. Um, so how do we make sense of these words? And how do we pull them into our lives? And as I prayed earlier, how do we become a community that inhabits these words, right? We live here in this space. And I think as we go through, we're going to see that we actually do live here in this space of suffering that Jesus articulates now. And we're meant to live there as followers of Jesus. So three things I want us to think about in connection with this text this morning. So they are these, the temple, uh, our suffering, and patient endurance, right? So the temple, uh, our suffering, and the call to patient endurance. So the temple. So the scene opens, right? with the disciples, you know, looking upon the magnificence of the temple in Jerusalem, right? So I want you just to imagine the first time that you saw some grand architectural feature. Maybe it's the first time you remember going to New York City. That, that's probably what comes to my mind most immediately because I grew up in a more uh, suburban context. And, you know, I had Atlanta tall buildings, but I didn't have New York tall buildings, right? And so I remember the first time I flew into Newark Airport and I, uh, I landed and I got on the bus and I took the bus to Port Authority because, by the way, I was poor. So I was, like, you know, taking the cheapest forms of transportation that you could possibly take. So I end up, you know, coming into Port Authority, not the most pleasant part of New York to come into, but as you come in to New York, you, then there were the, the, the World Trade Towers, and they were just enormous at the end of Manhattan, right? Have you seen something like that? Maybe you've seen the Freedom Tower, 
more recently. Or maybe it's you think about times when you drive up on Philadelphia after having been away. Maybe you were in, in the western part of the state, and you're driving back into Philadelphia, and there's the, the Comcast Towers, right? You, 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 you know what it's like to see something that is grand. And in those moments, and I'll certainly say this was certainly true of me, uh, you know, as that young kid coming into New York, you can't fathom those trade towers coming down. It's not in your imagination. It's not possible for you almost to sort of think about that. And the same is for us in any kind of context that we look on, and there's something so absolutely grand. Some scholars think that the temple took up one-sixth of the city of Jerusalem. I don't know. I'm sure Cindy Parker has an answer for that. We'll ask her later. But, you know, in other words, this is, it has an enormous footprint. Massive white stones gilded with gold, right? It was the most impressive architectural feature on the Jerusalem skyline. And so you can imagine just having your own moment of just being caught up and being mesmerized by its, its grandness, its beauty, its, its enormity. But the temple was also not, not just like this amazing physical structure, but it was singularly the most religious, singularly most important religious, political, and cultural structure within Jewish life. Because what happens theologically in that space of life and worship that happens in the context of temple worship, right? Now, this is hard for us to imagine, right? But, but, but if you just sort of sit, sit back in time a little bit, the activity of that building was meant to shape and articulate everything they understood about their humanity. What does it mean to be related to God? What does it mean to live with one another in community with one another and to be the kind of families that we're trying to be and to, you know, raise children the way we try to raise children and to love our neighbor the way we try to love our neighbor and to be a person that has a vocation because everybody wants a meaningful vocation. We want to have a space where we give back in some sense. The temple worship was meant to sort of shape the imagination of Israel for life. So think about that that moment, right? And what does Jesus say? Verse 2, not one stone will be left here upon another. It will all be thrown down. I mean, Jesus is talking nonsense. It makes no sense to them. They, they struggle with this. You see, on the one hand, there's a sense in which we should just acknowledge that Jesus is something that actually turned out to be quite prophetic. Because, you know, less than maybe 10 years later, Titus marches into, into Jerusalem and overturns it, and, the, and he actually is, the, the temple is desecrated. So Jesus says something that would come true within the lifespan of many of the people that were reading Mark's gospel. But more importantly, I think, is that the entire way that Israel was meant to understand what it meant to live faithfully with God and faithfully with one another as human beings was being upended in the Messiah himself. So Jesus is a replacement. Jesus is displacing the temple as the centerpiece for how they understood everything about life and what it meant to be a follower of God. And you can imagine that if this structure, as grand as it was, and all of its activities had structured everything you knew about faith and life, that for Jesus to say, I want you to begin to process all of that through me, that that's a weird thing. It's, you don't necessarily know how to do it. It's confusing. It's hard to imagine this structure toppling down, being broken up. So, the temple. Now, second, suffering. 
So the disciples very naturally, right, they want to know, like, hey, so let us in on when this is going to happen because this sounds pretty crazy. When is it going to happen, right? That's their question. Answer the when question, Jesus. And then Jesus gives a very odd answer in verse 5. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Beware, right, that no one leads you astray. And then there's the talk about, you know, false messiahs that are going to lead people astray. And this is where the text takes a, a few more odd turns in the story, right? Um, there will be false messiahs. In other words, you are going to meet and encounter individual persons who think they have a solution for your life. Now, in a messianic way, of course, that's religious, right? That somehow it's pertaining to Israel and God's coming kingdom. But situate that inside of our own context. You know, we are in a high political season right now. There are a lot of people who think they have a solution for our good life. And they're debating on the stage pretty regularly. Jesus says that, you know, you're going to be passing through this life and people aren't going to have so much of a humble assessment of themselves and what they can do, but they're going to think that they are your answer to your problems. Beware, right? Don't be led astray. Hold on to the real Messiah. Understand, right, what God is doing and the person in whom he's doing it. Hold on to him, right? Then he goes on, he says there are going to be wars and rumors of wars, right? Kingdoms and nations are going to rise up against one another. Later on, he's going to say your own families will be disrupted because they're going to take you to court or they're going to persecute you. Father will turn against their child and so forth. Now, these are things that we can't imagine, and yet these are things that happen ordinarily in everyday life. Relational brokenness. On the interpersonal level of our closest family units, but you keep sort of spreading that out into society itself. And so relational disorder between nations and countries and kingdoms, that's our world, folks. Natural disasters, earthquakes and famine. History is loaded with earthquakes and famine. Um, and and if, you're, if you read, all right, your news feed, right, you know they still happen. And you know that we live in this moment that scientists describe as climate change. And you know that one of the results is what? Hey, there are more fires in California. There were more fires in Australia. Life is just loaded with natural disaster. Are you following the news about the coronavirus? Does it leave you just sometimes just a little bit angsty? Maybe you've got some travel planned. Do I want to get on an airplane? Do I want to go to some other part of the world? Do I even want to go to some other part of the country? Right? Pandemics are real things. Historically, they're real things, and they may be a real thing now. Jesus says these kinds of things will happen. But here's the interesting thing to me is none of that was new. It sounds so weird and apocalyptic as you read it here, but if you just sort of slow it down and you think, well, these, this is normal human life. This is life in our broken world. Loss is pervasive in our broken world. And so Jesus says here, kind of remarkably in verse 8, that one of the ways that as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, that you might begin to think about these kinds of things is the way you would think about a mother that's about to give birth. This is labor pain. 
labor pains for the kingdom of God. And that feels a little disorienting to us, I think, sometimes, because I, when I think about suffering and my experience of suffering, I don't typically think labor pains, birth to life. I think more about, will this thing undo me? Will I die? Will this thing crush me? Will this struggle destroy me? It's not the most pervasive way, or persuasive way, rather, to get, um, to get people to join your party platform for Messiah. But Jesus' whole life is angled towards, especially in, in these last chapters of the Gospel of Mark, of just reminding us that the way we think about Messiah and our heroes and the people that might bring deliverance to us, that very often they're not at all the way God actually is. And what Jesus wants people to understand about himself is that his life is moving steadfastly towards his own suffering and into death. And that confuses the disciples because they have in their mind, right, that, that what a Messiah is. And a Messiah in the context of Israel was someone who's going to get rid of the Romans. That's our greatest need. How do you conceptualize the greatest need this morning, right? When you look at your life personally, or you look at our life collectively as a church, or you look at our life collectively as Philadelphians, or you look at our life collectively as, you know, citizens of the United States or whatever, how, how do you imagine, right, our greatest need? Jesus is so disruptive of what we think we know about God. I was... Um, I was recently sitting with a group of men who struggle with various forms of sexual addiction, and uh, one of the co-leaders of the group uh, asked the question, put the question to these men as they tell, shared their stories of struggle and, in many cases, you know, profound failure. Um, what would, if Jesus were to sit beside you this evening, and he, he just said, I heard your story, what, what do you think he would say? to you? Like, what would be his words to you in that space? And to a man, almost, everyone went around the, the group, and these men, as they shared their stories, and some of it was profound spaces of sadness and struggle, but to a man, they said things like this. I imagine that Jesus would say to me, why can't you finally get it right? I imagine Jesus would say to me, I don't understand why you can't put me in first place in your life. I imagine Jesus would say to me, shame on you. And I'm sitting there listening to these men tell their stories, and I'm thinking, that's not the Jesus of the Gospels. Because Jesus of the Gospels is one who seeks and finds that as Jesus listens to your story of brokenness, whatever it is, your story of struggle, your story of failure, even your own personal struggle from your own sin and sort of just, right? If, if he listened to your story or how you're suffering in your life, what do you think Jesus would say to you this morning? I know what he'd say to you. I found you. You belong to me. There you are. I've been looking for you. Everything about Jesus' life is upending our conception of who God is. 
so that we will understand that he is a God who suffers, who enters suffering in our behalf to deliver us. And while we live in this world that is still marked by that suffering, guess what the church is called to do? Take up its cross and follow Jesus into the brokenness of the world so that we experience its pain and its suffering and we become a community and individuals that reveal the hiddenness of God. Because someone sees your life or they get near your life and they taste what it might mean to be loved by a God who loves by taking up suffering. Our way must be Jesus' way of the cross. So the temple, Jesus is replacing it. He's displacing it as the sinner because he is the one in whom heaven and earth meet, upending life as they knew it in terms of faith in many ways. And Jesus calls us into suffering with him in this world. And now third and finally, this, uh, he calls us to patient endurance, right? It's interesting, right? Jesus never answers their question of when will all of this happen. He simply invites them into the kind of relationship with him that can lead them to patient endurance. So you're going to be dragged to court, he says, because of my name. In other words, your attachment to Jesus. You believed I am the Messiah, and it's going to happen that you will experience some kind of persecution because of this. But God, by his spirit, will give you words to say. In other words, what is Jesus saying? That your life, attached to my life, has brought you into such union with God himself that the spirit will give you wisdom in those moments of your persecution. Or when suffering intensifies, and he seems to say here quite clearly that it will intensify, such as no previous time has ever experienced. That's scary. But Jesus says what? God hears you, and he will ultimately deliver you from evil. We say that prayer every single week when we say the Lord's Prayer, right? Deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Jesus says the Father hears you, and he will deliver you, his elect, his family. So patiently look to God, even when it looks like he has failed you. When it looks like suffering is increasing and not decreasing, his promise here is that the Son of Man will indeed come in the clouds with power and glory and gather the elect from across the face of the earth and across time into the fullness of his heavenly kingdom. In other words, Jesus says, look, I am Messiah and the Father will finish what he started. Hold on to that. Even when you're confused, (laughs) even when it feels like loss, even when it feels like the brokenness of the world is of such immensity that Jesus can't possibly be real, hold on to me because I'm revealing the real God to you. Jesus will finish what he started to do. This impossible world will one day happen. So reflect, live out, embody the same love of Jesus that you've experienced of him in this world of his own brokenness. So I've been reading a a book by a man named um, Alan Kreider. He's a missionary scholar. He wrote a book, a real page turner, called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Yes, a page turner. I know you're rushing out to Amazon to purchase that book right now. 
Look, but it's a fascinating study of how Christianity grew and became a larger religious movement. Uh, and he basically looks at it. He says, you know, the key to Christianity's early growth was the virtue of patience. The virtue of patience. The virtue of patience with God. Now, I don't know about you, but I do know about me. <laughs> I am impatient with God. I want change now. I want it change now in my life. I want change in your life now. I'd rather your pastoral problems be small, not large, right? Please, come on. I'd, I would really love it if one of our political candidates had a real solution for uh, world hungry or for illiteracy or for chronic poverty or for the health care dilemma. I mean, I would love it if someone knew what the heck they were talking about. Patient endurance, the virtue of patience is something that's lacking in our culture at large. And very often it is something that is lacking inside of the church. Are you patient with God? Just think about the places in your life that you struggle with. Are you patient with God in those spaces? So here's his argument, it's just this. That the early church didn't grow because it had these wonderful preachers or it had like a wonderfully articulated uh, apology for the Christian faith. We sometimes think that that's the key. It's our words, right? We imagine that if we just get the words right and if you can just get someone in front of someone that gets the words right, right, that people will embrace Jesus. No, it's actually never been that way. People have to encounter Jesus. They encounter the likeness of Jesus in the people of Jesus. They encounter love, patient love, patient presence, God's nearness. They encounter in Christians what Jesus was like in the world. And that's his basic argument, is that when you look at the early church, that what happened in that space where Christians were persecuted, by the way, they were killed, by the way, right? Life was not easy for them. Christianity was a tiny sect of Judaism that would eventually be outlawed by the Jews themselves. But Christians just kept believing that what God had said he had done in Jesus was real. And they just kept taking a next step of faith. And the next step of faith might be something they'd say to a neighbor, but more likely it would be that they just demonstrated love. They demonstrated love inside of their households. They demonstrated love with their neighbors. They lived differently. They lived patiently with God, believing that the kingdom of God is indeed a kingdom that will not fail, that will in fact come, and it will endure forever. And that shaped the way they live their lives. Yes, change the title, please, the patient ferment of the church, but that's what we need. And that's what Jesus is calling us here to, that we would be persons in a community, and it's what Mark was reminding the early church of. Will you be a community that just holds on to the truthfulness of who Jesus is? He's the real Messiah. The others are not. Hold on to him. He holds on to you. He is with you. And it's only then that you're able to attach your experiences of suffering and call them birth pains. That somehow through our experience of suffering, the kingdom of God is coming.
Stick with Jesus. He sticks with you. Because God is a God who hears and seeks and finds. And his quest reaches its highest point in the person of Jesus, who throughout his his human life, right, throughout his life, with every step, Jesus is doing what? Denying self, loving neighbor, loving God, denying self, loving neighbor, loving God, moving toward the needs of the world until he is crushed by our resistance and refusal of him on the cross. And Jesus here calls us to be people like him. When you pass through these kinds of birth pains, the question that we need to be asking ourselves is just simply this. Who is with you in this suffering? So if you were like that group of men that I was with last weekend, and you were telling your story, and you know your sorrows, and you know the hard things, who is with you? in your suffering, in your story of suffering? Who sees your life story of suffering? Who hears your cry? See, what Jesus is urging his disciples to understand is that God hears their cries, and he's with them, and he seeks to anchor their faith, right, for life now and into the future. He hears you, he comforts you, he is with you, and he will bring all these things to pass. They will come true. God has not forgotten you. Sometimes we look at our life stories and we do think God's forgotten us. He's too busy dealing with other problems. But Jesus wants us to understand that he has not. He is with us. One of the poems from the book for this morning, for the first Sunday of Lent, is a poem by R.S. Thomas, who is a wonderful Episcopal priest and poet, and he writes this poem called The Bright Field. Listen to it. I've seen the sun break through to illuminate a small field for a while and gone my way and forgotten it. But that was the pearl of great price the one field that had treasure in it. I realize now that I must give all that I have to possess it. Life is not hurrying on to a receding future. Life is not hurrying on to a receding future. Though with every single year that you pass life, it feels like it is. Death is crouching, it's enclosing you. Life is not hurrying on to a receding future, nor hankering after an imagined past. What a beautiful reminder. It is the turning aside like Moses to the miracle of the lit bush, to a brightness that seemed as transitory as your youth once, but is the eternity that awaits you. So I think the challenge that Jesus puts before us in a text like this It's just very simple. Will you be like Moses? (laughs) Will you look to the lit bush that is Christ himself who loves you, who delights in you, who says, I found you? And take comfort as you walk through the suffering spaces of this life as a person of hope because Jesus is with us, friends. And he will love us to the very end and he will bring us to his heavenly kingdom that is real and will endure forever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would meet us as we continue to think on these hard words of Scripture, and that 
you would help us to call these twin realities to mind this morning as we continue in our worship that we are broken and we are sinful and we live away from your love. But remind us more than that, that you never live away from your love and that you love us and you seek us and you find us. So we might be persons and we might be a community that lives in love like that in our world of suffering. Meet us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.